Hi, and welcome. Today we talk with Thomas. He runs the podcast about New Zealand, and I won't embarrass myself a second time by trying to pronounce it. His subject was Richard Henry, the father of New Zealand conservation. This journey was quite interesting, and I had so many questions as usual. My curiosity got the better of me. Thomas studied zoology and genetics, so you can understand why he is so fascinated by this topic. On this podcast, I interview academics, students, scholars, amateurs, all people who are passionate about their topic and they want to share with me. This podcast is not just about Canadian topics, but hi, I'm Rosie. I'm a Francophone from Canada, and this is my podcast. I guess now it's time to dive into some New Zealand history, eh? Today we're talking with Thomas from the Hands podcast, and that is the history of Aotearoa. <laughs> of course, I'm going to mangle it, but it's the New Zealand history podcast. Yep. I'll let you say the actual name since I'm mangling it, Thomas. But <laughs> <laughs> That was actually pretty good. Compared to a lot of people, that was, um, that was pretty close. But yes, um, kia ora. My name is Thomas, and I am the bloke behind the history of Aotearoa New Zealand podcast is very much does what it says on the tin it is a new zealand history podcast or as you said the new zealand history podcast because <laughs> there's basically only one of me there's also another one that's made by a very large company here in new zealand but we don't talk about that because they have lots more money than me <laughs> so so yeah so the topic that i've chosen to talk about today is obviously new zealand history based but it is one that is quite close to me in terms of what I do for a living, um, which is I am quite heavily involved with New Zealand conservation. So a lot of it to do with get it, basically getting rid of uh, introduced mammalian predators, because as you might be aware, New Zealand has a lot of endemic or species that are found nowhere else in the world. And that is really, really cool. But it means that they're very, very susceptible to outside influences like rats and, and um, stoats and possums and cats and all sorts of other things. And that has become a really, really big problem here in New Zealand at the moment. It has been for some time, in fact. And that's basically what I do is I try and stop that from them spreading and that kind of thing. So, so you're trying to control the pests. Yeah, try and control the pests, try and get rid of them um, and that kind of stuff. So that's what I do for a living. And so the person that I chose to talk about today is Richard Henry, who is considered to be the father of modern New Zealand conservation, essentially. He is the guy when it comes to New Zealand conservation. You know, if you ask someone here in New Zealand, you know, who's the first guy that did New Zealand conservation? nine times out of 10, it'd be this guy. So he's really, really important. And I'm willing to bet, even for any Kiwis in the audience, you've probably never heard of him. Or at least that was the case when I asked my workmates about this, um, as they didn't know who he was, which is quite concerning considering we're in the industry. <laughs> Absolutely. But you'll be able to tell them all about it now. <laughs> I will, yes, which will be good. Maybe uh, quickly for some people who are not aware that New Zealand and Australia are not in the same landmass. No, Australia and New Zealand are not the same landmass. Some people don't understand that sometimes, yeah. Yes, I do forget that because I live on one of those landmasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, we're not the same landmass. There is a whole, there's about 2,000 kilometers between us worth of water. Yeah, so it's not the same thing. So yeah, uh, without further ado, shall we crack into it? Absolutely. 
Um, he was born in 1845, which is quite a tumultuous time in New Zealand's history. Uh, obviously, Europeans have come over now and they have started colonizing New Zealand, which is at the bottom of the South Pacific or the most southern part of the South Pacific, if anyone doesn't know where it is. And so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of Europeans coming over and colonizing and the indigenous population, Māori, were not really getting along with the Europeans. The Europeans tended to be quite aggressive with their land expansion at the time. So five years before this, so in 1840, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed uh, between 550, I think it was, Rangatira, which is Māori chiefs, and the British Empire, which was uh, represented by William Hobson, who would become the first governor of New Zealand. And the idea being that the Treaty of Waitangi would essentially solve most of the problems that were happening. It would give Māori their sovereignty. It would allow Europeans to have a foothold in New Zealand and have make New Zealand a colony. And essentially it was an agreement between two peoples, you know, basically how they would live together and how they would respect each other and all that kind of stuff. But in typical colonization fashion, the Treaty of Waitangi was basically ignored by the British Empire. And it caused a series of conflicts called the New Zealand Wars or the Land Wars. And that's kind of what's happening at the moment in 1845 is Māori and Europeans are basically fighting a series of battles all across the country with the Māori basically thinking that they have certain rights under the Treaty of Waitangi, which they do, and the British Empire basically saying, well, we don't care, pretty much. So that's kind of what's happening at the time. So it's a very, I guess, a settler society in terms of Europeans. And yeah, and Māori basically fighting for their sovereignty, fighting for their life, fighting for basically their right to exist at this point. So it's all very interesting and there's lots of conflicts and a lot of politics and a lot of really cool stuff. And we're not going to talk about any of that <laughs> <laughs> because this basically has nothing to do with any of that. Except for the time in which he was born. Except from the timing, he does come to New Zealand in that kind of time period where these conflicts are happening, but he's so far removed from them geographically and kind of politically and mentally and everything else that it just doesn't, like, it just doesn't even factor into our story, which is amazing. Yeah. In the sense that it's amazing that he was able to get so far away from it, but it's also amazing in the sense that we don't have to spend 20 minutes trying to establish all this other stuff that's happening because <laughs> that would take some time absolutely so that's very good so that's kind of what's happening in new zealand at this period in history and kind of during this whole kind of mid 1800s to kind of late 1800s um which is where the majority of our story is going to take place is it's a it's a time of conflict it's a time of you know european expansion british expansion specifically for new zealand and that kind of stuff but as you said not going to talk about that don't worry about it so where we're actually going to start is in Ireland. So Richard Henry was born in Glanbane in County Kildare in Ireland on the 4th of June in 1845. And if you don't know Ireland that well, like I did when I researched this, uh, this that's just outside of Dublin is where he was born. Which is interesting because he was born to a Protestant family, which is a very strange thing because that area is very Catholic. Yeah, I don't know how that happened, but it did really strange um and he was the fourth of seven children uh, which is um yeah that's uh, quite a few kids <laughs> <laughs> um and his father was a civil engineer of some repute he was actually uh, the local duke's appointed engineer which was um pretty good it meant that they were pretty wealthy I and mean, he actually rose through the ranks beyond that to becoming i think basically the general engineer for most of ireland which was really cool 
and his father was also a member of the Freemasons and apparently the High Knights Templar, which is weird. Don't know how that happened. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, don't know what's going on there. I didn't really look into it, to be honest. But yeah. So when Henry was born in Ireland, it was actually a pretty tumultuous time there as well. Because of course, Britain was doing its thing in Ireland as well. In a sense that it was basically trying its best to quell you know the whole island with varying degrees of success but pretty much outside of dublin it was very poverty stricken there was uh, a lot of uh, famine and that kind of stuff it was not a great time to be in ireland so for example in a town of 9000 in 1837 this one town owned between them 10 beds 93 chairs and 243 stools and that was it basically so it was not a great time to be living in ireland at this point and this was a lot due to a whole bunch of really complicated political stuff that had to do with land and that being basically given to british lords and all this other stuff but again it's really complicated and really boring and we're not really that interested but what did happen at this point as well was of course the great famine or the great starvation also commonly known as the potato famine but depending on whether you're from ireland or not they call it the great starvation or the great famine so that didn't really help matters, obviously. Uh, you know, if you're already poverty stricken and now you've got no food, not great. And Ireland was just really not a very good place to be in general, um, unless you were a noble. If you were a noble, you were pretty much fine. But if you were anything lower than that, it was not great, even for Richard Henry's family. So even though they were, um, you know, of quite high standing, they were relatively kind of okay, but they still got quite drastically hit by the potato famine. So when Henry's father got word that his relatives who had moved to Australia were actually doing quite well, he was like, I'm going to go there. I'm, I'm out. Like, if I, Ireland's going down the toilet. I'm out. That's what he did. That's quite far. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite far. And it was actually quite unusual for an Irish immigrant at the time, um, as a lot of them were going to the States instead, not Australia. So he was taking quite a bit of a gamble um, in that regard as well. And thankfully for them, they, of course, they still had quite a bit of money because they were still quite wealthy. Um, so they were actually able to travel to Australia in reasonable amount of comfort, or at least as much as 19th century, you know, sea travel allows. So that was quite good. But there was still quite a big step in the sense that they really didn't know what they were getting into. They didn't know what was going to be on the other side. Um, they didn't know, they didn't know anyone really in Australia, apart from those relatives, of course. So it was still a really big thing, despite the fact that they were reasonably financially secure. And then in 1851 is when they finally left for, for Australia, which was when Henry was six years old. Um, and the journey takes about four months at this point. Um, so quite a long time to be on a big boat. And on the way, um, unfortunately, his mother and infant brother passed away. So it was quite a rough journey. So again, even though they did have quite a lot of money, you know, it was, it was obviously uh, not, you know, not the best living conditions anyway, as I'm sure a lot of people are aware. <laughs> so they get to Australia and they arrive in Adelaide and it doesn't go very well. No, they're not able to find any work. Um, so they get back on the ship and they move to Melbourne instead. Not Melbourne, they settle in, oh God, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this. Warren uh, Yep, yep, we're going to go with that. <laughs> so they're in Warrnambool, uh, which is in Western Victoria, which is about 13 and a half hours drive out of Melbourne's uh, CBD today. So they're quite some distance outside of Melbourne at the moment, um, which is in South Australia. And kind of growing up, uh, Henry was a very avid outdoors kind of kid. 
um you know he's really into his hunting his fishing canoeing uh, and apparently he was uh, making quite good friends with the local aboriginal people which is the indigenous population of australia and there's a whole thing there that he kind of has throughout his life with both aboriginal people and maori but we won't get too much into that either um, just because it's a bit sort of side on to what we want to talk about and he became particularly interested in the ecology of, you know, rivers and swamps and grass and bushlands, you know, and eventually working his way onto his own method of studying animal behavior, you know, just observing them and kind of thinking about why they were doing certain things and, and that kind of stuff, uh, which is really interesting because, you know, sort of, for example, he noticed that when quail, when they sort of went away or their population declined the quolls which are a native australian marsupial would starve unless they attacked local chickens that's very interesting because nowadays that sounds obvious right that's how you know you remove prey population the predator population has a hard time but back then you know that's quite a revolutionary kind of idea that's kind of something that's not immediately obvious so that's quite cool so around what year was this because he was born a little earlier but was he like in his 20s or? No, this is when he's probably 10 to 15, roughly. He's kind of figuring all this kind of stuff out. Mm-hmm. So he's not working there yet, really. No. So this is him just basically running around, climbing trees, scraping knees, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, just doing general things that kids would do, particularly if you're in the middle of nowhere in the Australian outback. So, yeah, so he came up with a bunch of, you know, different ideas about a whole variety of different things. And yeah, and one of the things he did learn kind of, or he did kind of observe at this time is that the quails and the quolls, when they did kind of disappear, he found out that they were down to the arrival of Europeans, that, you know, Europeans brought over all these introduced species, Europeans, you know, went out hunting species, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so he kind of basically deduced that this was the reason why it happened. And that would come in handy later because that's something he's going to see again quite later on. But in general, for the family, it does seem that they have uh, they sort of fell from their quite lofty heights of wealth and lost a lot of money, weren't doing very well, were generally quite in poverty, um, and they slowly had to get their fortunes back through you know basically hard work and, and a bit of luck. So they weren't doing too well, but they were slowly getting there. But eventually, in 1866, when Henry was 21, he went into a sawmilling partnership with his father at Woodford, which is just north of where they were living before. So that was really good that was awesome because he was you know they owned a sawmill um, so they were business owners that was really really good um, and they were earning a bit of money and it was doing really well and all seemed to be doing pretty good with his brothers as well George and William were working in the partnership as well and yeah and everything seemed to be going you know pretty pretty dandy eventually Alexander which is another one of his brothers was taken on as a hand um, sometime after but he actually died about a year after the sawmill got running it doesn't say how he died it just says he died which was interesting but it does kind of make sense in this in the sense that henry and his brothers particularly william were quite hard hit by this so it makes sense that they probably wouldn't write too much about it particularly since alexander was 18 when he died so he was very very young uh, and so they did not take it very well both richard and william left the business and basically woodford altogether they left town altogether they just went away george stayed on and eventually bought out his father's share and he kept the family business going but the other two brothers were just nah i'm just out of here now so yeah so they moved away um and william we don't know where he went to but we do know that henry basically wandered the outback for quite a while we aren't totally sure what he was up to but he was doing some like 
ranger type jobs and he worked for a sawmill for a bit as well so he was doing basically odd jobs out in the bush anything that he could basically get his hands on but during this time he still kept up with his interests in the outdoors Um, and in particular he took a quite an interest in the aboriginal technology and kind of the hunting techniques and things that they had as well in particular he had a real interest in their weapons particularly the boomerang kind of seeing how that worked and how they used it and that kind of stuff which i thought was pretty cool so in 1874 there was a series of strikes in the sawmilling industry as the workers union fought the mill owners uh, which led droves of people being laid off so there was just huge amounts of people being laid off around this time because as you know as unions start forming and start demanding proper rights and that kind of stuff the owners were just like nah you're out we'll just sack you all so that was pretty bad it is likely that henry was one of the people that was laid off so again he was kind of a bit wayward at this point he didn't really have anywhere to go specifically because he wasn't going to go back to his home back in um, woodford Um, So he kind of had to decide where he was going to go. But that was a bit more difficult in the sense that he couldn't just move to another place and then join the uh, sawmilling industry again because, you know, the same thing was happening everywhere. You know, the whole industry was basically in turmoil. So that was not really an option. But one of the sources that I used does sort of seem to imply that perhaps he remembered how his brother George had gone to New Zealand and done fairly well for himself there before he came back to Australia and then he joined the sawmill. So it's potential that Henry basically remembered that and went, you know what, I'm going to go to New Zealand and I'm going to see if I can do something there. So armed with all the ecological and natural wilderness knowledge he had gained, he set off for Aotearoa. So that's how he gets here. And as a bit of a side note, uh, a couple of years before this, he got married, but it looks like he came over to New Zealand by himself. We don't know what happened to his wife or any kids that he may have had. So there's something going on there, but we aren't really sure what. It's a bit weird, that one. But he came to New Zealand uh, basically after all these problems in Australia, which is a bit of a theme that you'll find in really influential figures in New Zealand history. Um, A lot of them are imports from Australia, (laughs) which is unfortunate, Yeah, (laughs) I think. (laughs) Well, well, technically he's an import from Ireland, if you want to go far, but... (laughs) He is technically an import from Ireland, yeah. But um, you do find a lot of people that you go, wow, that's really interesting. He's a great Kiwi. And then you find out he's actually an Aussie or he came to Aussie first or, you know, that kind of stuff. So, well, I feel like New Zealand's far from everything except Australia. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, Australia was a much larger colony at this point. Mm -hmm. So that was the more obvious choice to go to. But again, you know, New Zealand was kind of, I guess, like untapped ground. Yeah. If you want to call it that, like there's a lot of opportunity there to be out you know doing all sorts of different stuff particularly for a guy with his skill set he's got you know big sort of bush ranger outback skill set which is really good for new zealand where don't have a lot of large settlements and you know a lot of new zealand is just bush and that kind of stuff so new zealand was kind of i guess a natural choice for him in the end and what he did end up doing was traveling quite extensively around the country um, when he did get over here. So, you know, being in his late 20s, early 30s, he was in his prime, especially as he had experience being fairly self-reliant in the Aussie outback. So New Zealand was, as we mentioned before, a really, really good fit for him. Um, initially, he lived in places like Golden Bay, Taranaki, Banks Peninsula, before starting to get involved in the removal of rabbits. So he was gradually kind of making his way down the country. He started kind of in the North Island and came all the way down. So Banks Peninsula being where Christchurch is, um, for anyone who doesn't know. 
Um, so the pretty much the rest of the story is going to take place south of Banks Peninsula. So very, very lower South Island. So he gets involved shooting rabbits in Southland. And rabbits are a big, big problem at the moment because Europeans brought them over, particularly the English brought them over to make New Zealand seem more like England, which is just the dumbest reason to bring anything over. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the plants and all the nature would not be similar to England at all. No, no, it's it's drastically different. You see this a lot with other birds and things as well, as they brought them over because they wanted to be reminded of home, which is just oh, just so silly. But the thing with rabbits, of course, is they came over, they have no natural predators, and so they bred like rabbits. So the population exploded, and then they started burrowing in uh, like pasture fields and stuff. And that was a big problem for the farmers. Um, so that's why they were doing rabbit removal was because all the farmers were complaining about all these rabbits ruining their fields. So yeah, so he got involved with that until he actually ended up helping build a paddle steamer for Wakatupu Steam Navigation Company, which is in Queenstown, or was in Queenstown, um, or around that area at least. So it was at this point that Henry, uh, he actually made a move on another woman that he was quite into, but he was rejected unfortunately. And again, we don't know anything about this woman. We don't know who she was, uh, what her kind of status was, or what he saw in her, or anything like that. We basically know nothing about her, unfortunately. But all we know is that he made a move and was rejected. So what he decided to do was settle down at the southern end of Lake Tiano, which is kind of on the western part of the lower South Island, for anyone trying to keep track of where we are. So it's very much, at least at this stage, in the middle of bloody nowhere. <laughs> yeah, there's no industries or anything in there. No, there is nothing. There's not really anything going on there except for state, what we call station owners. So basically stations being very large farms. So there's only really that's going on there at the moment. But he builds a house on the shore of Lake Tiano. And during this time, uh, he took a whole bunch again of random jobs. Anything that would basically pay him. Things like, you know, being a bush and a boat guide, because uh, he did have a boat called uh, Putangi, which was quite cool. It was a quite a small boat, um, but it seemed to do the job for him, which was pretty good. So yeah, he was a bush guide, a boat guide on Putangi. Um, he was a carpenter, a handyman, and he did a bit of taxidermy as well, which is quite interesting, as well as, of course, still shooting rabbits. And the thing that Henry liked to do was basically wander around and in his free time, wander around and kind of explore a bit and that kind of stuff. Um, and he actually found evidence of the previous Māori occupation of the area as well, finding things like hangi, which is the pits that uh, Māori would dig to cook food in. So you put, you dig a pit, put volcanic rocks in it, uh, put your food in, bury it all, it basically cooks it and steams it, and then you dig it all up and you eat it. So he found evidence of that. Um, he found evidence of moa gizzard stones, so moa being these big emu and ostrich-like animals, birds, you know, two meters tall, 250 kgs in weight, so very, very big animals. So yeah, so he found evidence of their gizzard stones, um, and he actually found an old par site as well, a par being a basically fortified settlement, it's kind of, you know, it's got walls and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so he found a whole bunch of random archaeological stuff, which is really fascinating because Māori probably hadn't occupied the area for hundreds of years at this point. So they would have been very, very old. And yeah, and he also did some other general kind of exploring where he actually competed to try and find a route to the West Coast. So there was this big kind of competition to see if they could find whether they could get to the West Coast through any passes through the mountains because there's big old mountains and things in the way, basically. 
And unfortunately, he was unsuccessful losing out to Quinton McKinnon, who is another very famous New Zealand explorer. And Quinton McKinnon actually rediscovered uh, the route that would later be known as the Milford Track, which is a very famous track in New Zealand. So that's quite a big thing that he found. But interestingly enough, uh, Henry and Quinton actually had a sort of a rivalry. You know, they were dissing each other in the papers all the time, apparently, (laughs) which is quite funny. But that was up until the point that McKinnon actually went missing. And Henry went out on Putangi and actually tried to find him. Uh, But unfortunately, McKinnon was never found. And Henry actually helped carve a memorial into the rock for him. Someone tried to do it first, but didn't really have the tools. So Henry basically took the guy back. And Henry grabbed some proper tools and and went to the memorial and carved it out himself, which was quite a noble thing to do, I think. Mm -hmm. And it kind of shows a friendly rivalry. Yeah, it didn't seem very friendly in the letters and in the papers. Um, they They were going quite hard at each other. They were very much at each other's throats. But yeah, it does seem that Henry did seem to have a bit of a, at least a healthy respect for him, if not a, well he did beat me and um you know he is deserving of a bit of respect particularly since we don't know where he is he didn't get a proper burial that kind of stuff so henry does seem to have been you know mindful of that of the respect that he should probably give um mckinnon which really speaks to his character um going forward i think henry is a very complicated character as we'll find it going forward that he is a tough tough as nails bushman but he is um you know there are kind of softer aspects to his character Um, which is quite cool and quite interesting. So again, at this point, he'd used a lot of his spare time to observe the natural world and and that kind of stuff. Um, But more specifically in Aotearoa, uh, he would collect and preserve birds, because that's obviously our big thing here, is really weird and interesting birds. And he would analyze their stomach contents to determine their feeding habits, Um, you know, find out what they're eating and at what times and, and all kind of stuff. And so while he was out in the bush doing this, you know, he's out in the middle of dense New Zealand bush, um, sometimes he would hear this loud booming in the trees, this kind of boo, boo, boo kind of noise. And he eventually figured out, successfully, that it was the endemic kākāpō making that noise. Because what the male kākāpō does is they build this kind of bowl, they kind of dig a bowl in the um in the ground then they puff out their chest and kind of make this booming noise to attract females and the idea behind the bowl being it amplifies that noise and yeah he he successfully attributed it to the kakapo which is really cool and he actually noted kind of how many there was there was actually bloody loads of them um so it would have been deafening out in the bush to hear all these kakapo booming you know kind of all at once and he also noted there was a lot of weka, a lot of kiwi. Um, so kiwi, you, you're probably familiar with, or at least I hope you're familiar with. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we're all familiar with kiwi, even in North America. <laughs> yep. Yep. So kiwi, very famous New Zealand bird. Uh, but the weka um, is a, a similar flightless bird that kind of, yeah, I don't really know how to describe what it looks like. It doesn't really look like anything, but it's basically a flightless bird with feet and wings and feathers and stuff. You know, you can Google it, W-E-K-A, if you want to find out what it looks like. And also things like teal as well, and fio, which are um, blue ducks, which are again native to New Zealand as well. But what he did notice is that all of these species had declined after the introduction of mustelids. So things like weasels, stoats, and ferrets. And he actually predicted that this would lead to the kakapo's eventual extinction if the mustelids kept on the path that they were going. Mustelids are very 
notorious for being basically stone cold killers they are very very good predators and a lot of the time you know if a bird has been attacked by a mustelid because they'll have a kind of damage to the back of their neck uh, because that's how they attack is they'll jump on them bite down on their neck and that's how they'll they'll finish it off they do kill for fun which is not great there are a lot of people that find that you know they'll find chickens and stuff that have just died with these distinctive back neck wounds but they haven't been eaten or touched in any other way so it does seem that they seem to kind of kill for fun or for some other reason that isn't just for feeding so yeah we're not really sure for territory or whatnot yeah yeah maybe something like that yeah but it doesn't seem to be for feeding as you might expect so but moral of the story they are very good predators and yeah and henry predicts that specifically the kakapo but other species as well will go extinct if the mustelids are able to keep going on their current course so he took a lot of his observations and he actually turned them into articles for the local dunedin paper dunedin being the kind of major settlement on the opposite side of the island um on the eastern side of the island so he's on the western side in tiano and dunedin is on the eastern side and is the major settlement in the area so he takes his observations and he turns them into an article for a paper and from 1890 you know this spreads to a few other newspapers as well so he, he does quite a bit of writing um after this point so he also wrote a pamphlet along with a whole bunch of letters under the pseudonym an old acquaintance um which was quite interesting and in those he was detailing rabbit problem as well which obviously he had quite a bit of experience with um and so for a long time henry was actually not really into writing up until this point he wasn't really you know he didn't really do any writing there wasn't really a need for it you know being out in the bush he didn't really need to write all that much but he took it up initially as a bit of a necessity to try and get the word out to try and you know spread these ideas of look the mustelids are bad the rabbits are bad everything we're doing is bad you know all that kind of stuff did he have journals kind of like those um journals to describe all the animals and such not quite yeah not quite he wrote down a lot of his kind of observations and findings and again you know sent them to various people and that kind of stuff but not quite journals in that sense necessarily as far as i could tell anyway so yeah, he takes up writing as initially a bit of a necessity uh, but it eventually becomes a bit of an outlet for him um, because what he found was that scientists had a lot of a preference for formal analysis over field observations. What they really wanted was lots of evidence and lots of studies before they actually come to a conclusion and do anything about it. And this frustrated Henry a lot because he was basically trying to tell them, particularly in the terms of mustelids, we don't have time to spend 10 years trying to figure this out. It's happening now. If we do all these studies, and in 10 years' time we finally go, yep, mustelids are a problem for the native bird species, there won't be any native bird species left. You know, basically he was saying we don't have the time to be faffing around with this kind of stuff. So we have to do something now. But the scientists were just not into it. So this did really frustrate him. And even when he was talking about this and when he was trying to convince these scientists, hey, we need to do something about this, stoats and ferrets and weasels were still being released into the wild. Basically, the idea being that they were to combat the rabbits. That was part of their rabbit control, was that mustelids were a natural predator of rabbits back in England. So the thinking was that mustelids would attack the rabbits and keep the rabbit population down. Problem was, the mustelids very quickly realized, hey, why should I try and attack a rabbit that will just run away and burrow underneath, uh, you know, into its burrow when I could just attack that that kiwi or that kakapo or that weka and he has no idea what's coming because he doesn't even know 
who I am or has no defenses against me. And so it was a lot easier for them to grab all these native animals. So that's why they were being brought over. And they were still being brought over when he was saying all this. With about 1,300 of them being released in 1886-1887. And that was just in one area. So, you know, you've got 1,300 of these things being released in one area alone, which is just insane amount. Yeah. And I mean, it's, as you've said, they're not native to the population. So. Exactly. They didn't know what kind of destruction it would bring. Exactly. Yeah. Even then, like, you know, as I said, Henry was going out and telling them, hey, this is happening. And they were just like ignoring him or telling him, nah, it's not real or we need more evidence or whatever else. It was. And that hugely frustrated him. By 1888, their impact had become extremely clear, with Wicca numbers in particular absolutely tanking. Henry observing, quote, The ferrets killed all the wood hens to the eastward of Tiano, almost immediately after they were liberated, and cleared them out of the whole country of Wallace in a couple of years, end quote. Wood hens probably being in reference to Wicca. So yeah, so he was basically saying that the Wicca just disappeared, you know, within a couple of years, which ecologically speaking is overnight. It's just nuts. And this was backed up by a local station owner, which station being, again, a big farm. You know, he was saying as well that the Wicca used to keep the rabbit numbers down uh, because Wicca are notorious for basically eating anything. I've even heard stories of Wicca, you know, eating rats and all sorts of different stuff. They're just, oh man, they're crazy animals. So they're more like the scavengers. Yes, absolutely. So Wicca are a bit more like scavengers. They'll just eat anything, pretty much. So they're going out and keeping the rabbit numbers down. But of course, now that the ferrets and stuff were eating the Wicca, the Wicca couldn't eat the rabbits. So the rabbits were becoming more of a problem. So yeah, so that was backed up essentially by uh, other local station owners. And he was pretty annoyed because it, that meant he had to hire people to go out and shoot them, which of course for him is more money. So he was not too happy. And Henry also observed that once the Wicca population was basically annihilated, the ferrets moved on to the paradise ducks, which are another endemic species here in New Zealand. So the ferrets were basically just going from one species to another until, theory, they were eventually just going to wipe everything out. And it also seems like ferrets were potentially released into areas with no rabbits at all, only areas that had native birds. So, you know, who knows why that was. But it did endanger things like Kiwi and Kākāpō that otherwise would have been safe. Because the areas that they were being released was on these farmlands, and there was these kind of big mountains in the way between these large populations of Kiwi and Kākāpō. So the thought was that they would be safe because the ferrets couldn't really traverse that big kind of mountain range. However, they were being released in these areas now for God knows what reason. So that was a huge problem as well. And in saying all of this, Henry was no saint himself. Um, he actually ferried a group across Lake Tiano um, who had ferrets and released them. Um, so he actually had been, at least very minorly, involved in releasing the ferrets. And although, of course, we don't know how he felt about this at the time or even later on in his life, we have no idea. But I would hazard a guess, I'd be willing to bet money that later on when he realized their impact, he was probably none too happy about it. It did weigh on his mind a lot, I would suspect. Given kind of what I've read about him, what kind of guy he was, I would say it definitely was something that he um, he would have probably thought about a lot, um, his contribution there. And so Henry managed to befriend uh, some people who knew multiple members of the Otago Acclimatization Society. Um, and to give you a brief idea of what that is, the Acclimatization Society is essentially the precursor to the modern fish and game councils. Their kind of whole thing was to 
bring species over from overseas and assess whether the, they could be released into the wild, what their impact would be um, to manage, you know, sports fish, uh, sports birds, game birds, you know, all that kind of stuff. That was kind of their thing. And Henry's conservationist views were gradually being promoted through its ranks. So up until this point, they generally kind of didn't care a lot about conservation of native bird species. But as Henry was talking to more and more of these people, they started thinking, actually, this guy's onto something. Um, you know, he's actually a pretty, he sounds pretty good. So the organization was keen on Resolution Island in Dusky Sound, uh, which is in very, very western part of Southern South Island. Um, so that's in Fiordland today. So it's a very, very large island um, that they were very keen on making a safe sanctuary for flightless birds. So really good idea. Uh, and this did actually end up becoming a thing in 1891, uh, where the island was proclaimed as a reserve for birds. So essentially they took birds from all over New Zealand to put on this island? We'll get to that in a bit. Okay. <laughs> so, but the idea was they basically initially needed the government to proclaim the island as a reserve. You know, basically give it that legal standing. And that was kind of a whole thing in and of itself, because... Previously, the island had been given to various people for governmental purposes, which I don't know what that means. That's all that I would find out. Uh, but it was also given to people for a fish curing station, and it was given to the Department of Justice as a penal colony as well. But none of those ever actually happened. So it was a bit of a weird thing. It was given to multiple people at the same time, I should say as well. It wasn't like it was given to one department and then they said, no, nah, we don't want it. So they gave it to another department. It was all given to these departments at the same time. So they all, in theory, technically had claim to this island. But none of them ended up doing anything with it because Resolution Island was in effectively the middle of nowhere. Even more of the middle of nowhere than Lake Tiano where Henry was hanging out. So they just had no interest. So in that case, um, it was deemed that the island was the best bet for kakapo and kiwi recovery. Um, as well as hopefully being a refuge for Takahe, which is another uh, flightless bird that is extremely rare. And at this point, it was considered to be basically extinct. So that was a pretty big deal. So the idea uh, was to transplant birds to the island, which would be looked after by volunteers. So that was kind of the whole, the whole idea. But the thing was, the island needed to have a curator, basically someone who was, you know, the head ranger or whatever. And of course, Henry was a pretty natural fit. So he went for the job, um, who, and he's now in his late 40s. Uh, and there's this whole thing, basically, in the conservation movement. There's all these infighting, all of these people uh, just fighting over various things, wanting various things. It's just this whole debacle. And it basically involved mostly the government not wanting to acknowledge the issue of mustelids. And they didn't really, they weren't really that keen to appoint a curator. So Henry didn't get the job. Uh, in fact, no one got the job. So at that point, he becomes very, very depressed um, and he moves to Auckland, selling all of his assets, um, including Putangi, his boat, in 1893. Um, so not a very good time for him uh, at this stage. He heads up north, uh, up towards Auckland, um, and on the way, he stops in Rotorua um, to take a bit of a dip in the hot pools. Uh, Rotorua having quite a lot of volcanic activity, so they've got kind of volcanically heated pools that are quite famous. So he sits in there hoping that it might cure his uh, lumbago. However, it doesn't seem to have, unfortunately. 
Uh, he also considered going into the Cody timber industry, uh, Cody being a very famous tree here, um, very popular wood, at least at the time, because he thought, you know, he's got all the saw milling skills and that kind of stuff. Uh, but he was quickly realizing in being in his late 40s that he was just a bit too old for that kind of stuff anymore. You know, he was getting a bit on in years, at least in terms of, you know, the hard work and, and the hours and stuff that would be required. So he just, he said not to that one. I did have one question. So Resolution Island, mm-hmm. where they wanted to do the sanctuary, how far was it from population? Because it was like middle of nowhere, but was it accessible? No. Or did they have to build something on the island for people to stay in? So we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but the gist of it was that there was one steamer that went to the island every like three months. So it was very remote. It was even more of the middle of nowhere than where Henry was already living. There was basically no one around for miles. You know, he did occasionally encounter people, but I think the only person he really encountered that was in the area was this one very raggedy bushman that had lived there for decades, and he was basically considered a hermit. So, yeah, so it was really literally the middle of nowhere. Just nothing there in terms of habitation, people, anything like that. So... Yeah, because I'm just thinking if you're in charge of the island, let's say, they would have had to build some structures or yep. whatnot for somebody to live. And yep. Yeah. That is said, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so once he was in Auckland, he was unable to convince scientists on his ideas about kākāpō, um, namely their, their breeding habits, their behavior, their ecology, and all that kind of stuff. And of course, they were too defenseless against mammalian predators um, and that they would be likely wiped out which was something that he had first observed in 1883. So this would have been, you know, 10 years before this that he's already observed these guys, you know, mustelids wrecking the the kākāpō population, that kind of stuff. So he's been harping on about this for 10 years already and no one is taking him seriously. And of course, this didn't help his depression, uh, which was only made worse by the fact that he probably felt rather alone. You know, he was too old to pursue the industry he was physically skilled at, and he didn't seem to be going anywhere in the school of thought he was mentally skilled at. And he really felt no hope for the future um, with what I've personally kind of deemed a form of climate anxiety. You know, nowadays we see a lot of people you know, getting anxiety over climate change, you know, considering it's all very doom and gloom and that kind of stuff. Um, so it has kind of manifested as a mental health kind of problem. He kind of had a similar thing, except it wasn't related to the climate. It was more related to, you know, biodiversity and losing all these animals and that kind of stuff. You know, it seems to have been at least a similar condition to climate anxiety. I mean, I should say I'm not a doctor, so citation needed. But that's kind of the way that I was reading it in my research. That seemed to be how it was coming across was that he had a kind of form of climate anxiety in a sense so it all kind of came to a head um it was all kind of weighing more and more on his mind and so eventually henry settled his debts and took to a bridge with a revolver he had enough he wanted out and when he got there he he goes right i'm gonna do it but unfortunately or fortunately depending on how you look at it there was a problem with the gun and the bullet actually didn't hit anything vital in his head it actually just got lodged in his skull somewhere But he still had a bit of a clear head. It hadn't really scrambled his brain just yet. So he tries to cock the revolver again, which takes a bit of time because he's got a shaky hand, probably because he's just attempted to kill himself by shooting himself in the head. And he tries again, and the bullet misfires. At that point, I think it's a sign. (laughs) Yes. Well, this is the funny thing, is he thinks exactly the same thing. 
he basically goes, well, there, I mean, there's, there's got to be a sign. He actually says, quote, the remnants of superstition made me think I had better put it off to see what would turn up, end quote. So, yeah, he basically goes, you know what? If, if God doesn't want me to go now, he's clearly telling me something. So, <laughs> Bigger plans, bigger plans. <laughs> exactly. So he basically, yeah, he basically takes it as a sign and go, well, it's clearly, I'm clearly not meant to go yet. Which I think, again, you know, for a man who's very depressed, you know, he's a very hard-as-nails Bushman, he does seem to have a bit of a sense of humour, which I think is great. You know, even in what was effectively the lowest point of his life, he still has a bit of a, a bit of a sense of humour, which is really cool. So he then just basically casually walks himself to the hospital and admits himself at 5.30 in the morning with the bullet in his head still there, which apparently was removed pretty easily. So yeah, so he's just like, well, I guess it's, uh, you know, obviously not my time. Strolls on down to the hospital, says, I've just put a bullet in my head. Can you get rid of it, please? <laughs> <laughs> That's quite the story. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, it's quite morbid, but also quite quite funny, I think, as well. And so, yeah, he was interviewed by police because the police were obviously interested why he was trying to shoot himself. But he gave a semi-false name and quoted the reason for his attempted suicide as insomnia, um, just so that, you know, it wouldn't get out, his mates in the South Island wouldn't be worried, you know, that kind of stuff. But because he hadn't entirely lied, he did give that his name was Richard, but he gave a false last name. Um, so because he hadn't entirely lied, one of his mates from Otago actually was able to track him down. And he sent him a letter asking him, you know, basically, how are you? How's it going? I hear you tried to commit suicide. Are you okay? To which basically Henry sent another humorous letter back saying, yep, I'm fine. No worries. I'm actually having a pretty great time just chilling out in hospital. But his mate also told him about what was happening on Resolution Island, which really perked up Henry's ears because the government had caved to the Otago Acclimatization Society, basically hounding them constantly to appoint a curator. So the government had said, yes, we are going to appoint a curator. So Henry almost immediately got out of bed and basically went to work, you know, applying for the job again. And what he did was he replied to his mate and said, yes, I'm going to go for it. I just need seven pounds so that I could get the first boat back to Dunedin, which his mate did. He was right keen to get back into it. But the thing was, he did actually still have to apply for the job. He wasn't guaranteed it. Um, there was a few other people that were going for it that were also extremely qualified for the job. But because Henry, you know, had friends in high places, one of them being basically the president of the Otago Acclimatization Society, with their kind of backing, um, he was actually able to, to get the job. So he was pretty much a shoe in which was awesome. So he would be paid £125 a year, uh, which is about $25,000 in New Zealand money today. Not great, <laughs> if I'm honest. <laughs> but I guess if you're in the middle of nowhere prior to that, you don't have strong needs yeah exactly to have lots of money <laughs> exactly i mean it, the the idea being that he was um you know if he's in the middle of nowhere he's not going there's not a lot of shops around he can't pop down to the dairy or the supermarket or anything like that you know he'd be relatively self-sustainable in that you know he's a bushman he can go out and hunt his own food you know he can fix stuff that breaks down the money was more just for i guess if he wanted you know um luxury items to be uh shipped in and, and that kind of stuff so and the government was more or less going to pay for any other essentials. So, you know, he didn't really need a huge salary, essentially. Um, and he basically what he requested was to be given the same supplies as a lighthouse keeper. Um, since the steamer that uh, he was going to go on, it went around every three months to supply all the lighthouses that were around the area. 
So he just said, give me the same as what they're getting because, you know, then it keeps it all consistent and that's all I need because everything else I'll figure out how to how to get. But the thing was, there was a whole lot of back and forth between the government and the acclimatization society on the particulars of who would pay for what. And it's just this whole debacle. It's just a huge thing. But in the end, it pretty much got ironed out. The only thing was Henry had to pay for his own dog, supplies for several months, um, and he actually had to pay for his assistant out of his own pocket as well, as neither organization wanted to pay for the assistant. But Henry considered the assistant vital. So he was very keen to get him. So yeah, but the idea being that uh, the, the assistant would only hang around for the first three months and then the assistant could leave and Henry should be fine on his own. So he just needed him to kind of get set up. Um, but that did cost Henry about a fifth of his salary, which was already apparently £25 less than other curators in the country doing similar jobs. So he was already getting pretty shafted in general. But despite this, in July of 1894, he and his assistant, which is Andrew Burt, I believe, yes, Andrew Burt, went to Resolution Island and they landed on Pigeon Island, which is a much smaller island just off the coast of Resolution Island. Um, and this was chosen as a base just because it had two good harbours. You know, it was just a good place to, to settle down and right next to Resolution Island. So it all, you know, made sense and was kosher. So that was very cool. And during this kind of period, Henry also expressed concern for the plight of the New Zealand fur seal um, as he was heading that way. But, um, yeah, he was saying that not enough was being done. So even then, he was still looking at other things, looking at other animals, um, and basically trying to advocate for their support. And, yeah, and this at this point, he basically has a whole bunch of timber with him, um, and him and Andrew build a house and a boat shed as well. Because at some point, Henry got Putangi back. Um, off of his mate that he sold it to i wasn't able to find how much he bought it back for whether it was given back or anything like that but he gets it back which is pretty cool <laughs> yeah so yeah so he gets that back and to give you a bit some statistics it was a 4.8 meter long or 16 foot long dinghy that the putangi is the maori name for the paradise duck so that's how he named it so it's just a bit of a boat to kind of hoon around on for a bit and so once he'd built this uh, house and he built a boat shed, Henry was able to explore some more around Resolution Island and Dusky Sound, which is the sound that Resolution kind of sits just outside of. So he was getting, you know, things like the lay of the land and he was cutting some trails, you know, getting his machete out, cutting down, you know, vines and trees and stuff. And he was seeing evidence not only of the sealers, whalers and castaways that had come before him, because a lot of this area had been explored by numerous different people. Sealers and whalers had come and set up small base camps and that kind of stuff. And of course, pet castaways as well. But he also found evidence of the Maori that had lived there um, quite some time ago as well, um, which was very cool. And so Henry and his assistant, Andrew Burt, who was about 20 years old at the time, they really enjoyed a slower pace of life being, you know, in the middle of nowhere. They would often take Putangi out to go and look at fish. And what I mean by that is not just like catch fish, they'd actually just look at fish. Just they found it interesting to look at fish, which is a really interesting kind of thing I found. Just chilling out, looking at fish. When you've got nothing else to do, you know, looking at fish probably is pretty cool particularly if you've never seen the fish as well you know a lot of you know endemic fish here in new zealand as well and i mean people have fish tanks you know and they look at fish so yeah yeah same sort of thing i guess yeah and the other thing that they did a lot as well was they'd go out to a nearby shipwreck and they'd actually look for artifacts try and find some some interesting doodads basically that they could find and what they did um, on their first christmas to celebrate is they actually headed out to visit some penguins that were nearby um which is quite cool 
so yeah, so they went and had a look at some um, penguins, um, which were probably like fjordly crested penguins or, or something like that. But despite all of this, um, you know, exciting, cool stuff that he was going around doing and all that sort of thing, um, he was missing that kind of intellectual stimulation from his friends, who he could only really communicate at the speed of letter, uh, which was probably once every three months on the on the steamer that would come around and bring him his letters and take his letters away and that kind of stuff. He was quite missing that kind of stimulation with his mates chatting to them about you know the different things that were going on um, but he was regularly updating them on what was happening and they were very very interested to hear what he was up to so at this point uh henry knew that there was no kakapo on resolution there was absolutely none on the island um, because he knew what basically the signs of their feeding was um, so he was confident that there wasn't any there but he was also confident that the island could act as a refuge for them and other birds as it lacked weasels stoats and ferrets it didn't have them on there he thought it was a pretty good idea the only thing it had was rats but he didn't really understand that they were a problem until much much later and since the birds he wanted were abundant on the mainland his intention was to translocate them to the island in putangi he'd basically grab them get them on the boat put them on the island and initially this didn't go very well what happened was he used his dog to find them um, the dog would basically sniff them out and try to find them because kakapo have a very distinct scent. That even to, even to people, if you go up to a kakapo and sniff it, it's got a very distinct scent, which obviously makes it easy for a dog to find them. But the problem was the dog that he had hadn't been trained to find kakapo, even though he could hear them all around. He could hear them everywhere. He could hear that booming, but the dog just couldn't find them. So he quite quickly requested another dog to be sent to him, saying that a well-trained dog... Uh, was vital to do his job and that quote i could not catch one in a year without a dog end quote pretty vital to his job because um, he did attempt to try and catch them on his own without the dog and he just had no luck at all and so after a few more setbacks um that meant he had to had to wait to try and get the kakapo he eventually took out um his new dog with his assistant in may of 1895 which was about a year after they arrived so they went out to try and get um, some kakapo um, to see if they could translocate them and it was super rainy just the whole day it rained all the time but they managed to get 26 birds and relocate them uh, to the east and southern coasts of resolution so even though it went pretty bad in terms of the weather it was very successful he took the birds chucked them on the island great so that was a pretty big learning curve in general for Henry as he realized that his equipment wasn't really up to snuff. Some of it was designed for other purposes. Some of it was made out of material that just wasn't kind of good enough. So he made some more. He just went back to his house, took it all apart, built it back up again to turn it into stuff that he actually realized would be working a lot better. And over the next few relocations, you know, they went fairly similarly. Um, you know, the, the weather was poor, uh, but he was able to move a, a reasonable amount of birds onto resolution, which was great. And as I mentioned before, his friends back in Dunedin were very interested to hear how he was getting on. They were actually pretty much waiting with bated breath every for every letter that came. And his movements and what he was doing was actually being published in the department's annual reports. Um, I think he was under the Department of Land and Surveys at this point. So they were actually publishing them. Yeah. So he was taking different birds from different areas or was he trying to keep similar birds in the similar areas? Yeah. So this is kind of an interesting thing is he was taking them from kind of different areas yeah, they're all kind of in the same similar area. They're all kind of from the sound and from the neighboring sounds and stuff. But 
he was yeah trying to vary it up a little bit and one of the things he actually said because he was a bit concerned that resolution was not quite as favorable as some of the areas where he was taking them from you know so those areas were actually better so what he actually said if i can find it in my notes was quote they'll probably be better mixed up a little that is if they speak the same language and have no tribal enmities end quote so yeah so he was taking them from all, all over the place and he did kind of think maybe maybe that might be a problem but he seems you know in the end he realized that was better in the long run um overall because resolution didn't have mustelids so yeah by september of 1897 he reported that he had moved 210 birds so that was about a couple years ish after it actually started so really really solid effort was he aware of darwin because he's around the same time as darwin yeah he was uh i mean he was around the time of darwin but he probably wasn't aware of him i would say no way. Okay, so he wasn't trying to figure out the species and like that kind of stuff yet. No, he wasn't so much into that. Darwin was very much an academic kind of guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he's thinking about big, big theory ideas. I suspect Henry, had he known who Darwin was, he probably would have been a bit more like, ah, you know, whatever. It's, you know, he's more of a practical kind of guy. You know, he's he's like, I've been out there, I've seen this stuff, I know what's happening, and this is what I think needs to be done. But in saying that, Henry was a very academic kind of guy, so it is a bit hard to tell whether he'd be kind of into Darwin's ideas or not. Don't know. Yeah, I do suspect uh, Henry was very much too much of a outdoorsy bush. I don't feel if Henry and Darwin met, I don't think they would get along. <laughs> so yeah, so during his time on Pigeon Island, uh, in total, Henry actually moved approximately 750 flightless birds. That's including kakapo, kiwi, weka, and a whole bunch of other things. So he moved them all to Resolution Island and its surrounding islands as well. And by the time he uh, ended up leaving, he'd actually prepared a further 100 birds to go to reserves, government departments, zoos, and all sorts of other different places as well. He often worked with his assistant, as we mentioned, and as again, as we mentioned, he only intended to keep him for three months. But as it turned out, Andrew Burke was actually vital to the operation. Henry very quickly realized that he could not do his job without him, not just for the big stuff, but also just the simple stuff of bringing Putangi back into the boat shed. Um, he just needed a helping hand with that. So yeah, so he kept him on for a lot longer. And they also often had to work in wet and windy field conditions, which is pretty typical of Fiordland. One of the things that people say is Fiordland only gets two days of sun a year because it's just it just rains every other day, which is not quite true. Fiordland statistically gets about two hundred rain days a year, but it's just it's really raining all the time. It just rains all the time in Fiordland. Um, and during this time, uh, Henry was actually able to pioneer lots of different capture techniques. You know, experimenting with dogs, like we said, um, and nets and all sorts of other stuff. And he also proved that given the right conditions, birds could survive when relocated, which is a key tool used by the Department of Conservation here in New Zealand today. So at the time, it probably didn't seem like a big deal, but nowadays it's a really big deal what he found out. You know, again, the techniques used with dogs and stuff as well, that is DOC being the the acronym for Department of Conservation. uh, That is DOC's bread and butter today. So this is kind of the point where you start realizing, holy crap, this guy's actually really important. <laughs> yeah, he absolutely changed history. Yeah, but he was not recognized at the time for it. Um, partially, I guess, because it wasn't really as kind of a, they didn't really see it that way at the time and, and until we started making a concerted effort to conserve our native species and stuff. And people started going, actually, this, this actually works really well. So yeah, so he spent four years uh, moving the birds so that he, you know, he moved about 750 birds over that four years. 
um, you know, monitoring them, the ones that he'd relocated. And he actually even kept some in captivity for various reasons. As we mentioned, um, the ones going to the zoos and the, and the government departments and stuff, they were kept in captivity for a little bit before they were, they were shipped off in this kind of little paddock made of punga trunks. Um, punga being the silver fern, you know, the kind of, I guess, one of the symbols, the national symbols of New Zealand, um, big old tree fern. Um, so he built a whole bunch of, took a whole bunch of those trunks and then planted them in the ground to make a little kind of pen or a paddock. And if you actually go to Pigeon Island today, you can actually still see the remnants of that pen. It's still there, which I haven't seen it in person, uh, but I have seen pictures of it from one of my workmates who went down there. And it's quite remarkable. It is just kind of like a little banged up kind of pen. It's, so, you know, it, it doesn't look like much. Yeah, you know, it's one of kind of those things that you see and go, wow, this is actually a really important kind of thing. Um, so yes, yeah, so you still can go see it today if you can get down there. And Henry also spent two years looking for the Takahe, um, which as again, as we mentioned earlier, was considered to be potentially extinct. And in fact, the Takahe actually wouldn't be confirmed to actually still be alive. So the next confirmed sighting wouldn't be until 1948, which would be about 50 years, more than 50 years after you know Henry was on resolution. So it was quite a long time before Takahe were found again. Um, so by 1900, he had become, you know, gradually more and more depressed at the threat of that mustelids posed to the birds on resolution, uh, because during that year, mustelids had made it to the island. A boat had come along to visit, and some people, and those people from the boat were walking around resolution, and they told Henry that they saw a weasel. He spent a long time trying to find this weasel, and it plagued him for a very long time. And he was very not happy about it. And gradually, you know, basically through the supposed futility of his work um, after the weasel was found, you know, and just generally the job just losing its spark, you know, that black dog of depression grew until in February of 1902, uh, Henry wrote, quote, I feel I cannot stay here much longer. So I beg to resign my billet as caretaker of Resolution Island and propose to leave here by the next boat, end quote. So he was not a happy chappy at this point. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, the weasel, he chased it for, for quite some time trying to get it. And there was one. Uh, I don't know if he ever confirmed that it was there. That was the thing. And that, I think that was the worst thing for him is that because he never found it, it was more like a boogeyman more than anything for him. It ended up, it was the potential that it was there. And because he never caught it, he could never prove that it wasn't there. You know, you can't prove a negative um so i think it became more of a boogeyman more than anything else regardless whether the weasel was actually there or not it really just plagued him on the inside it really ate him up on the inside because he knew that if they could get there if they could get to resolution it was all over everything he had done had been for nothing and that drove that kind of black dog of depression so he attempted to resign but he was actually convinced to stay um, by some of his mates but he devoted less time to his usual relocations he didn't spend a lot of time getting out in his boat you know taking the birds over that kind of stuff instead he chose to take more of a passive role um, you know looking after uh, the reserves which was kind of exasperated by the fact that uh, Andrew Burt had had left some time before this um, and had gone through a few more assistants after him including one that actually just couldn't handle the job and he left after a couple of months so it was not going very well in the assistant department either. And that really came to a head when basically this assistant left because uh, he couldn't handle the job. 
and Henry was left on his own for a bit until he could get a new assistant, but then eventually that one left as well. And then Henry eventually just went, I'm not going to get another one. They're all useless, pretty much. So he ended up being on his own. And the only human interaction he had left being the letters that he was sending um, his mates back in Dunedin and any visitors that were coming on the boats that were occasionally passing through, that kind of stuff. So basically uh, becoming a bit of a hermit as well. And the sense of his urgency of the mission was kind of gone too, because, you know, in saying that he felt there was a futility to his work, you know, he'd actually done the bulk of the job. He'd moved the birds, you know, he'd, he'd got them to resolution. You know, in theory, he actually didn't need to do as much. He did actually need to take on a passive role now because he didn't have to move the birds as often. Yeah, so he only had to go grab birds that were being requested for other reserves and other governmental departments, that kind of stuff. That's the only time he had to go do that. Yeah, so in theory, he actually didn't have to do as much. Um, but he still continued to write articles for the papers, and he also wrote a book on flightless birds in New Zealand as well. Um, so he was still keeping relatively active you know, in his writing pursuits and, and still exploring around and, and that kind of stuff. And he regularly reported on his work to the Commissioner of Crown Lands in Dunedin, and he was later transferred from the Department of Lands and Survey to the Department of Tourist and Health Resorts due to the creation of what would become Fiordland National Park, which is New Zealand's largest national park. So this is kind of what I mean by he was kind of stuck in the middle of these very drastic changes. You know, Fiordland obviously being a pretty big deal. So that's quite cool, quite interesting. But in 1908, um, so this was you know, sort of eight years after he had attempted to resign. So he was on his own for, you know, nearly a decade. It was recommended that Henry, out in the Wop Wops alone, um, at this point in his early 60s, should finally be relieved of duty uh, due to reasons of his health. Just because, you know, it is a hard job. It is quite physically and labor intensive. You know, a man in his early 60s, they don't want him, you know, running himself into a grave. And coincidentally, at the time, the caretaker on Carpety Island, which is up near Wellington in the Lower North Island, um, had resigned. There was an opening there for someone to take up that job. And so Henry was offered the job, and to everyone's relief in the department, uh, he accepted. <laughs> so he finally moved back. They were all quite concerned he would say no, because <laughs> um, they all thought he'd really rather just be alone, stay out in the bush and die, basically. Um, but thankfully for, yeah, for him and, and for his mates, he did say, he did say yes. And in theory, that was going to be a good thing because Carpety Island is much closer to, you know, civilization. There were people living on the island as well, as we'll talk about in a minute. So, you know, so it was going to be, in theory, going to be a lot better for him. So in the end, he ended up spending, uh, I think it was 14 years, uh, looking after Resolution Island. And when he left, he doesn't seem to have dis been disappointed that he was leaving. Leaving Resolution, Pigeon, or basically the whole dusky sound that he'd explored quite a lot of and found all sorts of really cool stuff. And whether that's because he was focused on other things, because um, there was something going on at the time when he left, um, which is not hugely relevant, or whether that was because the black dog of depression had grown, it's not really clear. So yeah, so he didn't seem to be that sad, which is... You know, not something that you would expect for a man that had been so passionate about, you know, this one island and the birds and stuff. But of course, it kind of makes sense if he's probably been depressed for the last eight years on his own, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, so he gets sent up to Carpety Island and he stays there until 1911. So for about three years. 
um, doing similar stuff to what he was doing in Dusky Sound and on Resolution. Although now, as I mentioned earlier, he shared the island with some other people, uh, primarily Māori families who had grazing animals, which Henry really only saw as more introduced species that he had to contend with. Um, so things like sheep and goats and cows, um, you know, they were ruining the environment just as much as the mustelids were. And it really became a point of contention between uh, the families and Henry himself, as he just, yeah, again, saw them as an obstacle into making the island a haven for birds, particularly kiwi in this case was the big one for Kapiti Island. So he did that for a few years um, and he retired to Kadikadi uh, near Tauranga in the Bay of Plenty, which is sort of kind of up in North Island. And that was in 1912. And then he moved to Helensville, north of Auckland um, in 1922. So he stayed in um, Kadikadi for about 10 years and then he moved to, Auck- uh, sorry, moved to Helensville in 1922, 10 years later. Um, and he spent a lot of time, as he put it, pottering around. <laughs> enjoying his retirement (laughs) yeah pretty much he was basically pottering around you know not really doing a lot he was writing a lot um he still kept up with that but you know he basically said i want a place by the sea where i can potter around so that's basically what he was doing for quite some time but by 1928 his hands were so shaky uh that he actually could barely sign his own will um and his mental and physical condition were rapidly deteriorating so the years and the hard life he'd lived uh, were catching up with him um, until he was admitted to Avondale Mental Hospital in Auckland, basically having nowhere else to go with no family or living friends. So all of his friends from down in Otago in the Otago Climatization Society, um, by this point it all passed away. So he didn't really, you know, and he never married in the end. He never had any kids as far as we're aware. So he didn't really have anyone to look after him in his old age. So Richard Henry passed away on the 13th of November, 1929 of senile decay and heart failure with only the postmaster attending his funeral. He was 84. So that's kind of his story, but to kind of round it all out, uh, Richard Henry was a visionary, a man who was so far ahead of his time, he may as well have been a time traveler as far as I'm concerned. You know, he pioneered ideas and techniques that would become the staple of the Department of Conservation today. Most of what we know about kākāpō and many other endemic birds come straight from the observations of Henry as he was watching their decline due to introduced species. And although depression and other mental health issues plagued him, in large part due to seeing this decline firsthand, I think he would be at least somewhat pleased with what we have done today. A dedicated team by DOC was set up to bring back Kākāpō called the Kākāpō Recovery Program using translocation and modern genetic techniques to ensure their survival. So as of recording, the last year was a bumper year for breeding, resulting around 200 individuals left of the Kākāpō population, which is horrendously bad in terms of uh, population, but it is being quite heavily controlled and the future is looking brighter for them. There is actually quite a reasonable amount of hope that they will come back from the brink. As for Resolution Island itself, uh, for the last 15 years, at time of recording, a concerted effort has been made to make it predator-free, and that has been met with great success. Rats have been entirely eliminated, and those pesky mustelids are pretty darn close, with the thinking being that any found on the island have actually swam from the mainland, so they don't think that any are actually breeding on the island, at least as far as I'm aware. That might need to be a bit more citation needed for anyone a bit more knowledgeable than me. 
So this essentially makes Resolution Island our seventh largest island, the largest predator-free island in New Zealand to date. It was a huge effort to make Resolution Island predator-free, um, or basically as predator-free as we can make it, or as, as much as we think we can make it. But we aren't stopping there. The plan is to make all of our islands, including the North, South, and Stewart Island, free of rats, mustelids, and possums by 2050. Quite aptly named uh, Predator Free 2050. So the idea is to make the entire country totally predator free of at least those three groups. Totally predator free. Totally gone. There's none of them left. Because they're invasive species. Yep, they're all invasive species wrecking the environment. You know, obviously we've talked a lot about mustelids, stoats, weasels, and ferrets. uh, But rats and possums um, are really big, really big problems as well. So we're hoping to get rid of them entirely in New Zealand which is obviously a hugely ambitious goal, uh, but personally, I think one that Henry would be proud of. Uh, His influence on the way we look at and perform conservation today, I think cannot be understated. This tough as nails, hard case, but ultimately lonely and broken man dedicated his life to an ideal that wouldn't really be recognized for nearly a century. So in the end, I think he has well earned the title father of New Zealand conservation. Absolutely. And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) So if there were no predators prior to the invasive species, how did the population stay controlled with the birds? So there was um, other predators, you know, things like other predatory birds. I don't know what specifically goes after kākāpō. It might be things like kareria, which is the New Zealand falcon. So I think that probably that kind of stuff... Sorry, uh, the species that were controlling the populations were all birds. Yeah, there's pretty much only birds on New Zealand. I mean, there are reptiles and bugs and that kind of stuff. Is there like little moles and stuff and little voles? No. Mice? No? Nope. None of that? None of that. So they're all pretty much birds. So it would have just been predatory birds, so birds of prey and that kind of stuff. So that would have been their main predators. But of course, you know, kakapo develop, you know, they evolve defense strategies and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, the population stays roughly in balance because they're used to them. They've always been around. Yeah. You know, they're always going through that kind of arms race of evolution. But you suddenly introduce something that they've never seen before that they have no defense against. And suddenly they just can't handle it. This is the thing that you see, not just for birds, but you see it for tuatara, which is a native New Zealand reptile. They have the same thing. Um, you know, they have all these defenses against predatory birds, but, you know, you introduce rats and mustelids and they just don't know how to handle it because they've got nothing against it or their defense mechanisms work in reverse or they actually help the the predator catch them when it comes to mustelids. Yeah, they were kind of saying uh, the population was staying roughly the same or quite in balance with the predator population up until the point where, you know, mustelids and, and rats and, and possums and cats and all sorts of other things. Uh, were introduced. All of this is very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I found it really interesting to to research. It's um, you know, it's really the beginning of I guess the development of my job. So it's something that I found very personally interesting to um to read. But yeah, no, it's a, a fascinating sort of thing, in particular because um, you know, today we take for granted that you know mustelids and rats and and possums and cats and all sorts of other things, we take for granted that they're bad. Um, and that we really should probably get rid of them. But he was watching it as it was happening. You know, we take for granted that Kākāpō are rare now, but when he was around, it wasn't. And he was watching them go into major decline. He was watching 
you know, what would have been an eventual extinction of, of Kakapo and various other birds. And at least from where I sit doing my job, it's hard not to sympathize with him, you know, when he goes into his quite deep depression, tries to commit suicide, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's hard not to really go, yeah, actually, that could, that could probably be me if I was him in his position. Really interesting to see from his perspective, you know, in terms of like, we're really lucky that somebody was actually watching this at the time and someone was actually writing it down. You know, because it, it could have been anyone else who became, you know, curator of Resolution Island and we never would have known anything about it or it never would have become a reserve or, you know, no one would have cared about the, you know, native species and that kind of stuff until years later, until we'd lost all sorts of other things. So I was extremely lucky that he was placed where he was and when he did, which is, yeah, kind of unfortunate that he ended up getting, you know, quite thoroughly shafted throughout his life. You know, his brother dying quite early on. He tries to marry at least once in Australia, but that something happens there. You know, he tries to make a move on a woman and here in New Zealand and that never happens. And then he ends up disappearing into the bush. And yeah, quite a hard guy, quite a, you know, as any Bushman, kind of stereotypical Bushman you'd expect. But he seems to have been quite a sensitive guy as well. Yeah, I found him quite an interesting character to look into. Quite a complicated sort of character. Well, without you doing all this research and finding out about it, we wouldn't know about him very much. And even though I'm not a native New Zealander, I can really appreciate any conservation efforts he would have done. Yeah. Just in general. I'm sure there's some techniques that he's given other countries. Oh, I mean, New Zealand, uh, just, to, just to sort of brag a little, uh, is New Zealand is considered one of the top countries in terms of conservation. Our... Our experts in that kind of field are very highly sought after overseas. Often what you'll hear is, you know, when you hear conservation efforts in Europe and stuff, sometimes hear, you know, oh, our consultant guy worked heavily with Doc in New Zealand. And you always hear people go, oh, geez, he's, oh, he's legit. You know, he's from New Zealand. <laughs> you know, he knows what he's talking about. I hesitate to say that we're world leaders. We still have a long way to go and we still have a lot of problems to deal with. But they're positive steps forward. But there, yeah, there is a lot of really good stuff going on. There's a lot of effort going on. You know, I talk uh, every day. I talk to people on the ground doing this sort of work. And it's really great to hear their positive stories where they go, we didn't hear any birds for years. And now we see them all the time. Two years of trapping or putting out bait or and poison and stuff. And now we hear them all the time. And that is amazing. And that's kind of what I mean by I think he would be really proud of what we've done. It did get worse from after his time. And, and we've still got a long way to go. But, you know, there is a hugely concerted effort. And conservation in New Zealand, unlike when he was around, is now considered essentially wanted to be the, the core tenants of what it is to be a Kiwi. If you aren't into native New Zealand birds and you aren't into trying to save our native species, I mean... Like, we don't want to know you. <laughs> so it's become a big part of the culture. Absolutely. It's a huge part of the culture. Even for people that aren't, that's not their job or that's not their necessarily one of their big interests. You've got to be for the birds. You've got to be, you know, thinking about these things about, you know, how your business or how your actions might affect native species. It's a very common pastime in New Zealand. You know, you go out to the bush, go tramping, or you go out into these places that have native New Zealand birds, like eco-sanctuaries that have spent years trying to get rid of the pests within their area and that kind of stuff. It's, yeah, it's a huge part of New Zealand culture, you know, this conservation and, and that kind of stuff. And it really, really one of the underpinnings of kind of who we are now, which is, yeah, kind of why I mentioned that, you know, 
he was really ahead of his time and his ideas and his techniques and his kind of philosophy really wasn't recognized for nearly a century he was just that far ahead of his time yeah i guess unfortunate that he was um not recognized when he did he's kind of i guess the um well, I was going to say that the Mendel of his time, the guy who figured out stuff about genetics and, and phenotypes and stuff, you know, he wasn't recognized in his time as well for, I think, 200 years until someone picked up his books and went, holy crap, actually, he's onto something here. You know, it was the same with Richard Henry. No one really picked up his stuff. I mean, some people did, as we talked about, you know, some people did pick up his stuff, but it wouldn't become, you know, essentially government policy. It wouldn't essentially become part of the fabric of who we are here in New Zealand for yeah nearly a century well that's very incredible oh my goodness (laughs) thanks so much for all the info i always have questions so i appreciate it (laughs) yeah i realize a lot of people don't you know sit in the space of conservation and that kind of stuff and i've I've gotten a bit used to explaining the maori words and that kind of stuff as well so yeah no it's definitely not unexpected when you go actually can you just just like hang on a second i've got like all these questions (laughs) so no it's definitely Definitely not unexpected. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean, besides listening to your podcast, I know nothing about New Zealand. So as you can tell. <laughs> 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 well, I really appreciate you being here too. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much again. It's been a lot of fun. See you later. Bye. How fascinating is it to listen to Thomas? Make sure to go check out his podcast. The link is in the show notes and on the blog post. And for the book recommendations, they will be in the show notes. Unfortunately, I don't have them in front of me right now. Don't forget, you can catch me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at History A. You can check out the website, historya.com, and you can send me an email. If you do have a moment, it'd be great if you could rate this podcast. It helps me get found, I think. I'm still not understanding all the algorithms yet. I'd like to thank my husband, Jamie, and our brood of kids, our family, our friends. Without them, I wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.